0: Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Lives podcast. The show that explores life purpose by taking you on a journey into different people's unique and somewhat squiggly worlds. We're your hosts, Helena and Claire. Welcome to our next episode of Squiggly Lives. This week we talk to Emmy McMorrow. Emmy is a British actor, writer and producer. Having trained at the prestigious Guildhall School of Music and Drama, she went on to work as a TV actor, with roles in the BBC and in independent feature films. She has written scripts for channels such as ITV and currently co-manages a film production company called Smolder Productions. We talked to Emmy about her acting and writing career, her shifted energy and priorities upon hearing she will soon be a mother, as well as her spiritual outlook. We discussed the topic of mental health in great depth, including her own journey, society's attitude towards mental health, and how she works to raise awareness of it. We cover a wide array of topics, including discovering passions, how perspective and attitude to the outside world changes over our lifetimes and careers, how we can all better understand our own personality type, and what purpose means for her. Enjoy!
1: Hello Emmy, and welcome to our podcast. Well, Let's start by talking about acting. And let's take it from, I loved what you said about that you well I love that you said that you can't remember a time when acting wasn't a part of your life Mm. quite open-ended but (laughs) (laughs) let's start with acting and get and let's give people a little bit more about your background and why that's so important why acting is so important to you
2: (laughs) hi Claire hi Halle really great to be here and thanks for having me um yeah it's really true I haven't there was never a time in my life when I didn't want to be an actor. Like I don't remember, like one of my first memories is looking at a television set and asking my mom, trying to look behind the TV to see how the people got on the TV, in the TV. Um, and like I looked at the stage and just wanted to be up there. And I, it wasn't good enough for me to see the play. I just wanted to, to be up there and know how they were up there. And I, I that is, these are my early memories and I actually really don't remember a time, so. Um, it's funny, like, I always, I always go around asking children, like, at the age of four and five, what they want to be when they grow up. And obviously, it changes every week when I talk to them, or they, you know, they don't know. And I'm always so confused by that, because I've never not known what I wanted to do with my life. It's, it's quite a weird feeling. It's a weird concept that other people don't aren't born with that, you know. So obviously, I always wanted to do that. And my, my parents were obviously always like, yeah, no, that's not a, a proper career like that's not safe that's not you know it's not gonna earn you a lot of money um which they were right by the way <laughs> but um uh, they they were actually really good because I was an only child and my parents were both my mum's a university lecturer and my dad was a teacher then then he retrained in IT um they, so they all have what I call like proper jobs like you know professional jobs um and I'm an only child and I was pretty academic like I had the the fortune of having a brain that could learn facts quickly, so I did get, like, straight A's, and um, for them to sort of not give me a hard time to to choose to do acting when I could have done other stuff was actually really lovely of them, I think, and they did support me, so I went to Guildhall. I was very adamant I wanted to go to Guildhall. I was very obsessed with Ewan McGregor, and he'd gone to Guildhall, and I was just absolutely adamant that I was going to go there, so... And I get something in my head, it's a bit like a dog with a bone, and I it becomes like an obsession, that I have to do it. So I did get into other drama schools the first two years of applying, but I was so adamant I wanted to go to Guildhall that I just kept trying until I got in. So I got in on my third application. Wow. Um, and, yeah, and that was that. And then I just graduated and sort of started doing TV jobs here and there um, since
1: let's talk a bit so how did it feel so you said your third application it's incredible you did get in (laughs) yeah for a lot of people even that one
2: rejection might
1: be enough to say okay this isn't for me," or maybe I'm not good enough or or what was different about the way you approached it
2: that was so true and I think that's the difference because Heli asked in the in the pre-chat and before we got on here like what she said that I had friends who, you know, wanted to do acting but didn't do it. Um, and I think if anyone is crazy enough to do acting with their life or, or anything really that's, that's, you know, financially precarious, I think there's always something in them that is so sure that that's right for them and so sure that they not, not want to but have to indeed do that with their life that that will override any rejection that you might get so whereas somebody who you know is like oh I quite like this and you know I'd like to do this they might be knocked down by those kind of rejections um, but I think if you're so sure that it's the right thing for you you do have that sort of burn in you to keep going and I think it probably helped that I got into other schools as well so I'd had other validations from other schools that I got off of places at but I was just so adamant that that was where I wanted to be, that, you know, I just kept going. I think it's that sense of belief. And I think we're talking about purpose here. I think, you know, purpose is, is it's like a burn. It's like a burning need to want to do something. Almost like, almost like a need in a way, like um, more than a want. You know, it's like a, a surety that that's what you should be doing.
0: Did you consider any other things or did you not even entertain Never. the thought no. of anything else?
2: Literally from the age of like three or four, I was never gonna do anything else. Um, yeah, quite quite single-minded, blood, bloody-minded really. Um, and I sat, <laughs> the only time I ever got like, cause I was a bit of a SWOT at school, and the only time I ever got bad feedback was in the careers class when I just wouldn't partake because I sat there and was like, I'm gonna be an actor. And they were like, can you, can you do something else? Can you like, you know, just have a look? And I'm like, it wasn't even, I remember it wasn't even listed on Kudos Careers, which was like the system that they gave us to kind of like with all the careers listed. And I was just like, no. And my teacher was like, you're a straight A student, you know, you should really consider doing something else. And I was like, no. And they, in parents' evening, they were like, she's really not participating in careers class. And my parents were like, yeah, we're having the same problem too.
0: (laughs) I was going to ask, what is it about acting what is the feeling that it gives you that you love it so much
2: yeah good question good question I think there's like lots of different things I think there's a kind of unhealthy side to it and a healthy side to it and the unhealthy side of things will probably bring me to another question another aspect I'd like to talk about of purpose later on but the healthy side of it is this it's this joy of telling a story being a, t- a storyteller and being able to like magically, you know, immerse yourself in another world. Because I was a very shy child as well. I was very picked on. I was very, I was, I was called, I was, I've was. i always been very highly sensitive. So I was called a crybaby at school. And, you know, <clears throat> the thought of having an outlet for all those emotions or there the something where those, that side of me was actually useful to tell a story, to immerse myself in you know, situations and people that I could never be or never dream of being was was such an attraction to me. And um, you know, for me, like watching film, film has always been my number one passion. I love theatre too, but it's always always been about a film. You know film was the thing to me that that could change my mind on stuff. Like I can watch a film and come away and be so moved that it will change my opinion on stuff and that the magic of that, of being part of that. Um yeah, our, our drama teacher, our, our voice teacher at Guildhall, Patsy Rodenberg, um, she's a she's amazing. She's like this voice guru um, of the world. She she said to us that if you want to be an actor and if you've gone to the point of, you know, yeah, getting to the stage of getting into a good school and all of that, you will at some point in your, in your childhood, even for one moment, have felt that your voice has been taken away from you. And I, I think that's really true. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, I, I did feel like... I needed the attention as well psychologically and I think I think any good actor has to go on a journey where they drop that side of them and only focus on the storytelling side because one side is very Mm self-centered and the other thing is very community and giving to contribute to a story so um I think any decent actor at some point in their 20s sort of, a lot of us find like spirituality, a lot of us like start yoga or meditation or something like that to kind of ground ourselves and deal with that wounded child, you know.
1: So in your 20s, did you make that, you made that shift from the acting being about you finding your voice again to then you really wanting to yeah give and yeah. share a story do you I want think to talk a bit more about that yeah
2: I think that was the problem for me I think the second I stopped doing that things got a bit better I mean like I yeah there did seem to be a difference in the people who approached it more from I love this I want to do this and I need to do this um, like for example I was Jodie Whittaker I was at drama school with Jodie obviously now has a flying career and um, she was probably the most fully rounded, unexpected spectant, happy in herself person I've ever met in my life and she just had this approach to it that was like I love this it's my passion, it's my joy but you know if it doesn't work out it doesn't work out you know, there was no need for her to do it. She was very grounded within herself. Mm. And I think that probably contributed to her success because she didn't give off fives of, oh, I've got to do this. I need to do this, you know? So I think for me, um, I went on a journey where um, I everything kind of crashed at once. So I'd, I'd been offered this, I'd written this script and it had sold to ITV on Option and I developed it with them and I was meant to play the lead in it and then after two years of like developing it with them where they were like oh our cupboards are bare we really want this we're gonna make this they turned around and they were like we're not gonna make this and my whole happiness was rested in that my whole self my whole sense of like being identity was almost in this project right and so of course when that's taken away from you that's gonna have a massive effect on your mental health so I ended up at the same time my Nana, circumstances Nana got dementia really badly and my boyfriend broke up with me and I had to be out my flat because um, the money I was relying on from my TV didn't come in. So I had basically had a breakdown and after that sounds a bit um, namby pamby but um, it was more, it was kind of like a spiritual awakening for me to kind of realize what's important in life is actually friends, family, you know, um, joy just the joy of the storytelling side of it not needing to be have attention you know and it just made me look at life differently and you know I read a few spiritual books at the time which I'll you know can talk about at the end because I know it's one of your questions that it just made me completely shift my filter on my life and everything in it Um, and since then I feel like just things have gone better for me.
0: Did you change externally did you change your focus on what you your energy into
2: yeah I kind of did I started to accept work that I wouldn't accept before so I was like well I can't really do that play at the dog and bollocks pub because you know there's no money in it but I was like I'm gonna do that play because it's joyous and then from that became other opportunities that I probably never would have got because I wouldn't have accepted that you know I started to see it more for the the joy of stuff um, and I started to not put all of my, I think I'd put all of my eggs in this one basket. I started to do other stuff with my life. So I started to get into comedy, which I, I can talk about later with a, f- a friend of mine, Lorelei Mathias. Um, I started to, you know, co-write write with her comedy as well. I set up my film development company. We took on other writers. We developed their scripts. And I kind of spread my, you know, myself around a little bit more um, and I guess I sort of opened myself up without it not being all about me and my acting. I made it more about other people and collaboration, I think.
1: Now probably is a good time <laughs> to talk a bit about melon comedy. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and the mental health link.
2: Yeah, yeah. So obviously I said, you know, I'd been through poorly, um, what I would refer to as a nervous breakdown in 2012. And um, so I, my friend in my, in my 20s, my flatmate, um, Lorelei Mathias, she was, she was always very talented um, writer, she'd already had some women's fiction out for, under, I think, Random House or Penguin, published author, and she always wanted to write comedy, Um, and we went on a trip to LA together, and I think (laughs) I got ghosted, I think, by this guy in LA, and we decided that ghosting was such a terrible thing in dating and so inauthentic that we needed to write a sketch about it, sending these people up that ghost. Um, and from that, like the Ghost of Busters was born, our first sketch, and then melancholy was born. And, you know, Lol also has ADHD, so that's very important to her to raise awareness about that. And we decided to make sketches um, um, about the craziness of this world, the madness of this world told through the eyes of the crazy ones. So we wrote a lot of sketches about mental health and things like that. Um, we had a satirical piece about suicide because I was dating somebody who unfortunately lost their battle with with mental health in 2017. Um, and we wanted to do something for him to sort of commemorate his death. So we did this piece um, that ended up being picked up by Calm, the male suicide charity. Can't really call it a sketch. It's probably more like a piece of satire on how people respond to male mental health and suicide. So all of our work, usually has that kind of slant to it, kind of wanting to make the world a better place without saying, wanting to sound trite, you know.
1: I'd like to talk a bit now about writing and acting. Although, yeah, acting is still a big part of what you do. It feels the writing has has almost, well, become as important or more. Do you want to talk a bit?
2: Yeah, that was a a bit about acting
1: and writing.
2: Yeah, that was a weird thing. That was a really weird, direction in my life because as I've said I've only ever been so obsessed with acting and I used to go and see like I remember going and seeing a medium in one I saw one medium when I was 22 and she was like you're too preoccupied with the one career you need to open your mind up and I was like whatever I saw saw another meeting when I was 26 I'm gonna name drop her here Vera Coe her name is Vera Coe I think she lives in France now and she every single thing she's told me has come true Every wow. single thing without fail. She was the one that told me I was going to write a script and sell it to television. She told me I was going to be a writer. She told me that in my late 30s, I'd get into comedy writing, sketch comedy writing specifically. And I literally sat there and I was like, none of this is going to happen. I, I can't write. I'm not a writer. I'm an actor. I can't do that. I don't know how to do that. Um, I think, but to start my journey with with writing, it, it all happened when I again dating i have a lot to say about dating i could i could literally sit here and talk about dating for an hour and the inauthenticity of modern dating and how terrible it is that everyone's so unauthentic or inauthentic how no one says what they think and feel on dating apps and how there's these ridiculous rules of don't text them back for four days and literally just bloody well be yourself i'm so tired of it um I have met someone lovely now, but I had zero tolerance to guys on apps. I'd literally call them out on the first date. I'd be like, this is not acceptable. So I'd never get a second date because literally I can't stand the whole sort of having to read people what they're trying to think and feel. Can't deal with it. Um, So I actually started to write a TV series about dating about three girls in London um, that ended up being called The Smoke. Um, And it started when I was waitressing at the hospital club which was a private members club for the creative industries, which is now unfortunately closed down because of COVID. And I would sit there and I would write my sketches on, uh, not sketches, sorry, my scenes on the back of my waitressing pad, that's how it started out. And I'd go home and I'd type them up in the evening on my laptop. Um, but I was absolutely convinced that this had to be on television. I was like, we've got Sex in the City, that's finished. We've got skins, that's weaning off. We don't have anything. For twenty somethings, at the time, girls didn't exist. She was developing that with HBO. The same time, I was developing that with with ITV. Girls didn't exist. We didn't have drifters. Um, Fleabag was just probably a you know a glint in Phoebe's eye at the time. We didn't have anything like that. And I was so adamant that it was missing from television, and it needed like girls' voice needed to be heard. That I was again, I had that similar purpose. Yeah, I had a, that. I was like this is right. This needs to be made. And it was that sort of fire in me that I was so adamant that this had to be a thing that I think allowed the universe to allow the right people to come into my life to get it through the doors of ITV because it was actually the members, um, the producers and stuff that I used to serve tea and coffee to that actually were the ones that pushed it through the doors and allowed me to network in the right places to get get those meetings in the first place. So ended up having a lovely promo made of it, which we shot with a few, you know, established actors, and um, we got a few famous actors on board attached to it, and then it got sold to ITV, and we developed it. You know, it was it was a success in that you know I sold it, and you know we made it to a certain point. We made a ten minute promo of it. in the end, they said that the female characters were too spiky to redeem their negative features, right? Which, at the, at the time, Julia Walsh, the head of de- that development of ITV, was like, I'm so disappointed with this as I see sexist feedback. I'm so disappointed with it. Why can't females go about swearing and having sex on television? This was um 2011, by the way, 2012. Um, and she was like, I find it really annoying and I'm so sorry girls that it's come to this. It wasn't, I think it was a male controller at the time. Okay, so I'm in no way comparing myself as a writer to Phoebe waller She has a talent that I could even never even dream about like getting towards, but I do know for a fact that if she'd have submitted feedback at that time, she probably would have got the same feedback um, from, you know, for the same reasons. Um, but I was so glad when I saw a Fleabag, a fleabag on TV because I was like, okay, finally, finally, they've now realized that women can can be portrayed like that. And that's absolutely okay, you know?
0: But your move to writing then? Yeah. Was that that happened after your sort of shift in yeah, attitude?
2: Actually, no, it didn't, you know, it it kind of did. I was starting to sort of get into Buddhism and starting to meditate. So it kind of was the start of me seeing things, you know, differently. Kind of looking at myself and going, oh, I can be a bit of a selfish dick sometimes. I think I actually feel sorry. I'm, I want to actually take this opportunity to apologise for everyone in my everyone in my year at Guildhall because <laughs> I think it was a bit of a selfish nightmare back then. And to which I think well, I ran into one of them recently and they were like, oh, you know, we all were. Which we probably were, but also like you know, I, I I needed to work on myself, I was very like the typical only child, like could be quite selfish. So I I, I then did start sort of meditation and Buddhism and I, I, I was starting to see things a bit differently and I'd actually started to chant Nam-myoho-renge-kyo um, with the SGI. I'm not actually with the SGI anymore, um, but I would never, I never would... Um, What's the word? What's the word? I would never talk badly, let's just say that, about the organisation, which a lot of people do. People say it's a cult and it's this and that. It's not. It's really not. It's it's a wonderful organisation. I won't give my reasons for coming away from it here, but it certainly helped me a lot at the time. So I started to chant Namyo Horenge kyo and it's like my life opened up. Like I, I suddenly felt like I was part of this world and not isolated from it. And at that time that's the time I started to write. That's the time I got this desire to write, which it it kind of came from nowhere. I can only imagine that it came from the fact that I'd started to chant and meditate. And you know, when you look when that happens to you, you look at the world differently and opportunities and things that you think you couldn't achieve before just come to you, you know? Mm-hmm.
1: Let's go back just a little bit with Because there are so many different, I guess, spiritual groups, meditation, Mm, mm. lineages, and practices. What was it that drew you to, it's SGI Buddhism, right? Yeah. What was it that drew you to
2: that practice? It was working for my friends that were practicing it, working as in that they were really happy. They had, and a lot of them were actors, and they had a sense of um, self um, that was an identity that was separate from their acting, which I didn't have. Their happiness wasn't rooted in their career, which was something that I lacked before the age of twenty-seven, or even thirty, really. Um, and it was very helpful at the time for me to go on a journey, start to read spiritual books, start to sort of see the bigger picture of life, really, you know, and look at kind of look look inward and see what I needed to change within myself. Um, and the reason I came away from it was just because um, I moved to New York um, in twenty fifteen. And I, I'm, I didn't get on with SGI USA very well. Um, it was very different to SGI UK. Um, it was handled, the way the people interpreted, interpreted it there was very much different to the UK. It was a little bit culty there, um, it's not in the UK. And um, there was a lot of holes in it for me about what I believed in. For example, I I've, I have seen ghosts before. I've seen a guardian angel. I saw a guardian angel when I was 17 and when I asked them about these things, they kind of dismissed them. And I think li- moving on to the book, I actually read a book called Conversations with God uh, by Neil Donald Neil Walsh, which completely changed my life. And it was like reading all of my truth in a book. It, it changed my life because I was like, this is everything I've ever thought about life and believed in a book. And I had to stop practicing at that moment because it it was like I'd found something that really, really did completely gel with me and there was no holes in it for me. Mm. Yeah.
0: What's the essence of the book or the main messages in (laughs) the
2: book? The main message, if I could clarify it in one, in two words is, is, um, so it's, so first of all, God in the book is, is more of a kind of like, um, more of a Buddhist way of looking at God. It's not the traditional Christian and certainly not Catholic God. I was Christian Catholic, um, so, Neil, the author, which I've, done, I've actually done some retreats with him, he says, if you could sum it up in one sentence, it's God saying, guys, you've got me all wrong. You've got me all wrong. What your religions say about me, that's not true. And essentially, the centre of the book says that we're all God. Every single person is God. Um, so, therefore, there are simultaneously no God and a God, because everyone is God. And the philosophy behind the book is that... Um, when you die or before you're born, love is all there is, right? So if love is all there is, and that's the only thing there is, how did God, the entity, the energy that is God, know that love was love if that's all there was? Like in in day-to-day life we know tall because we have short. We know hot because we have cold. We know love because we see hate, right? So the idea behind the book was that God created Earth this realm and other ones as well. And if you want a great sci-fi movie, because I believe in alien life forces, I'm gonna confidently say it on this podcast, <laughs> watch Arrival because that is that has it down to a T with Amy Adams. Um, God created this realm and others so that it could experientially know, experientially, not intellectually, experientially, experientially know what love was. Mm. So to go to a realm where hate exists, love, then you know what love is. So the idea is that every single person on the earth is God experiencing itself through us. So therefore, your purpose, the book talks about purpose, and it's like your purpose is to find your joy. That's why you're here. Your purpose is to be love, spread love, and be joy. That's why you're here.
0: Did it have any advice about how to find your joy?
2: <laughs> no, I think it was going to leave that to, to Claire and Helly. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And we're leaving
1: it to the people we interview. (laughs) (laughs) No one takes responsibility for it.
2: Do you know what I think you did? I think you just said, what makes you feel good? Neil says, Mm -hmm. like, what makes you feel good? And by the way, Neil, to just clarify as well, he, this sounds really, I mean, people will take this as they take it. He's either a nut job to some people or he's or he is literally an oracle or he's someone who's in between, who had great ideas. But he claims that the book was not written by him. The book was written by God, speaking through him. He said he was an ordinary man walking around. He was actually homeless at the time, and he said, "Why the f is this happened to me? Why am I homeless? I was, you know, I had a career, I was a radio presenter. I've done everything, and I'm homeless. I've lost everything. Why the f is this happened to me?" And he claims that he, that God said, "Do you want to know? Get a piece of paper, write it down, and I'll tell you." And the books kept coming and coming and coming and coming, and that's what it comes from. So he doesn't actually claim that he wrote the book. But in the book, God, inverted commas, stroke Neil, whichever way you want to look at it, it's very clear about your purpose is what brings you joy.
1: Before you mentioned going to a medium, I think this all <laughs> ties in um, with us all being God as well. What are your thoughts on fate? Is, that, fate. is, this, is this something yeah. that we control or is there something external out there that, in your opinion...
2: I have a sort of dual, the way I look at it, because I do think some things are predestined. I think, like, any close bond that you have, so with close friends, father of your kids, you know, your mother, I think those things are predestined, like people that you're close to. I think you have a karmic imprint with that person that you've... And I think that's... You know, we talk about love at first sight. You know, people go, oh, I, I saw her and I just knew. Well, I think that just knowing is... The recognition of someone's soul from a previous existence personally um you know or <clears throat> i'm also you know i believe that it's hard to explain but i don't time again please watch the movie arrival for ref, a great reference of this you know we experience time here as linear but it's actually all happening in one moment of now but humans can't experience that we experience it linear so when you say you just know when you meet someone it's that knowledge of your future self knows that that's the person for you or that you're gonna be close friends with that person. So in that way, I think it does. But I think it's almost like, in terms of what you want to do with your life, I think, yeah, I think we were given free will by source energy, God, whatever you wanna call. It. And I think, yeah, we do create our own fate, we do create our own luck. I think there's a number one, there's a, there's a, a numerous CD-ROM endings of our life floating around and we can pick any one and make the right decision. So I do think it's a combination of, in terms of people you meet, destiny, uh, in terms of um, fate. I think we do have a lot to answer for. I think we do we do have free will to create our own life. But um, I, I do, in terms of purpose as well. I think you know. I think it's quite possible that you do come to life with a purpose if you've got a strong vocation. Like I can't think of any other reason why a two-year-old child would suddenly want to just know to to want to be an actor. For me, that's, I came here with that. You know, for me, that was, has to be something so instilled in me when I wasn't in a family of of actors or anything like that. For me, I came here with that. Um, And there's also that brilliant movie, Soul, by Disney, Pixar. And all the little souls are like, you know, trying to assess what their purpose is. And, you know, they go, oh, I'll, I'll choose that one. I think it is a little bit like that.
0: Oh, I love that description. Can you see a point in the future that you might not want to do acting?
2: Yeah, well, funnily enough, I'm I'm actually 34 weeks pregnant, so I'm about to become a mummy, and um, I don't think I can see a time in my life when I won't want to act, no, but I can certainly see a time in my life, which I think is very impending, that something else will be more important than it, you know, for sure. You know, I think she would definitely come first. Now, I mean, if I got a great audition, I'd literally, excuse me, cancel holidays, cancel friends, cancel everything to go to it. Whereas I think now, if she needs me and a great audition comes up, I think, you know, obviously I'll try to make it work, but she will be be my priority. And I think that's gonna be quite a strange feeling for me. You know, like they were asking in our NCT club, not NCT, it's the equivalent to the NCT, it's the Bump and Baby Club. Like classes, equivalent to MTT classes, they were asking, what um, are you most looking forward to about being a mum? And I said lots of other things about obviously feeling that love and, you know, you know, someone who's, you know, the love of, of being a mama. But I also said, you know what, I'm actually really looking forward to having another purpose other than acting because that's going to be completely alien to me. The idea of this other thing or entity being more important, that's going to be really strange and maybe quite refreshing. Maybe it will just be it might make me more of a grounded person because I think that's the negative that I wanted to talk about of having a purpose or a vocation or you are often so dissatisfied because you're not achieving that thing that you want to do. Like, you know, I'd love to have had the career like that Jodie had, you know, and it's, it's so hard for me not to compare myself to friends who've done better, you know. I try not to do it but it's always there sometimes, you know? So I think if you have something you really want to do, you're always waiting for the next, you know, you want to achieve, achieve more. Um, and I think, you know, to have, and, and that can kind of lead to certain anxiety sometimes. That's why it's really important to have a good spiritual grounding, because if you don't, your happiness is so rested in that. And I have friends like this. I have friends whose who's life is happiness is still rooted in their acting or comedy career, and watching them operate is not nice, they're often depressed, they're often, you know, they're not stable, you know, and it's it's really important, I think. And I think being a mum is going to give me something that's, it's just going to be more important. I think it will actually calm me down a bit and let me just be more, I think, you know, obviously I'm going to have sleepless nights and all of that, but I think on a mental, spiritual level, I think it will be a massive positive shift. How
0: do you think, don't know how to phrase this question but um it'll be a shift in your what where your priorities go and what you yeah. consider your purpose but how do you think is that going to be tricky to navigate sort of that your sense of identity I suppose along the way as well yeah. and letting things certain things go mm. and uh, yeah, how are you preparing for that
2: <laughs> you're right Helly. that's that's such a that's such a big thing um, yeah, and it, it's it's actually something I've not really thought about. And, and that, that might be something that I <clears throat> indeed struggle with. I, but I think because, so I also, because obviously um, I'm, I'm like, I do acting here and there, it's not consistent for me. So a job will come up and then that money will run out. So I have to have a consistent source of income. So I've been working as a nanny for the last um, year and before that on and off. Um, and I think because I've been working with children for two years um, um, I think there's more of a space in my life for a child than maybe someone who's like was CEO at Morgan Stanley or something before they became a mom. like I think the switch for me will be slightly easier for, than someone like that because I feel I have the time and the space for it because obviously I don't work all the time as an actor but I do think that <clears throat> the identity thing of now it is just about this little baby and you know my co-writer Lorelei, um, who's is actually the head of Melon Comedy, she's able to go off and do all of these things that I now can't do, and I'm losing that part of myself, or it's on hold. You know that that might actually be yeah, it might be quite a challenging shift. It's not really something I've thought about, but it's something that I'm aware might be a bit require a bit of a transition to to sort of get used to.
0: I'd like to go back <coughs> a little bit and um, talk about maybe mental health a bit more, yeah. and about. Perhaps how that affected your choices in life, if it did at all.
2: Yeah, um, I think the major thing for me was um, my nervous breakdown in 2012, and that happened after ITV were like, we can't make this script, um, and I obviously, like I said, put all of my happ- happiness into that, um, and all. Of, I, I used to be ter- terrible at putting all of my happiness into men as well, it was like any relationship I was in, I was like, here's my entire happiness, here's my entire self, here you go, you know, no boundaries at all. The concept of boundaries to me didn't even exist till I was like 34, probably. I'm 39 now, so. Um, And I think that that always had an adverse effect on my satisfaction of life. But I think having the breakdown um, yeah, it was a very, very, like, tumultuous time, and I was I was very, very suicidal, very, like, questioning my existence, you know, it was really dark, you know, I, I actually, I wanted to be institutionalised, I actually, I had to move back to Stockport to be look up, looked after by my family, and I actually asked my mum to drive me to Stepping Hill Hospital on two occasions, because I wanted to be, I was scared for my own safety, I wanted to be admitted, but fortunately the NHS is so overstretched here in this country that you, you can't front up and say, I want to kill myself. You have to have actually slit your wrist before they'll admit you, which is, is quite dark. We need we need more funding for mental health. The NHS does, um, but it was bad. It was really bad, you know, very dark place. And um, obviously questioning, I think questioning my purpose and had I made the wrong choices in my life to be end up in this situation at 30 was a major part of it. It was like, how am I here? Why am I here? What choices have I made to end up here? And I think coming out of that just bit by bit, it's like I had to rebuild myself bit by bit. And the old me that was totally reliant on this thing, this acting career for my happiness or on men and all of these external things, had to be broken down and taken away it was like the universe was like right no that's not healthy for you we're going to take every single thing away from you we're going to take your flattened dolcin away for you <clears throat> i had this hip flattened You no i had all of that life um we're going to take all of that away from you and we are going to force you to look inwards and rebuild your life rebuild the way you see things in a in a healthy way you know um and it did. And I got my life back bit by bit by bit. And then, you know, eventually I, I met Lol. Well, I'd always known Lol, Lorelei, but, you know, we started writing together about mental health. Um, I started writing a screenplay, I've still not finished, um, called Elwood Goodbye, which is which is about my experiences with, you know, my, uh, my friend who took his own life. So it, that now is a really important part of my work. Um, and I think... Um, there was also, I also discovered in, when was it? I think around 2014. 20 No, you know, it was even later than that. It was actually someone when I worked at the marketing store. They, um, one of the ladies there in, in the people team, um, HR, she sent me an article about highly sensitive people. Um, and God bless that, Alex, if she's listening. And she said, um, I think you might want to look at this. I think this sounds like you. And she only knew me from a colleague perspective from HR, not even from a friend.
1: Wow, was this before mm. you had heard of the term yep. highly sensitive person? Never heard of it,
2: which is, if I'd have known that as a child, my God, my life would have been so much easier. I'd had so much more understanding. Um should I talk about, talk about that now? Yeah, yeah,
0: say
1: a little bit more, because I don't think it's a really... Yeah. Um, well-known no if you want to maybe just explain a little bit about what it what it is it's
2: absolutely crazy that that it's not more well known than it is um because and this is actually a major purpose for me now to talk about it um in my life um i've actually set up a little vlog on instagram and i talk about it a lot in my vlog um so 15 to 20 percent of people have what's what's called sensory processing sensitivity and they therefore are classified as highly sensitive people. So that means that you're you're actually wired differently to a good eighty um, percent of the population. So it means you literally feel things deeper. So you know you could have a a given stimuli, and twenty percent of people will physically and emotionally feel that much deeper than those other people. Now, what does that leave you with? Well, that leaves you with eighty percent of people going oh god that person reacted very you know full on to that oh they're oversensitive you know oh they're a bit of a drama queen right and it's it's crazy because it, so you are more intuitive um, you're more sensitive you're more compassionate if you have this this, if you're a highly sensitive person you see connections in the world you, you can walk into a room and know that someone's argued before you walk in you can actually feel the vibe of a room you know what people are thinking often sometimes as well that can be a trait of it Um, and of that of that 20% of people 5% of those are extroverted so you get highly sensitive people who are mainly introverts and then you get a small group of those people and I'm one of these who's actually highly sensitive and extroverted okay now that means that people like me are very much often misunderstood not not to be like to make myself oh where where is me on your podcast because people associate sensitivity with being introverted people do not know what to do with someone who's highly sensitive and extroverted Mm -hmm. so we're the people who get called dramatic we're the people that often get called manipulative because no one can understand or actually believe that you can be crying one minute and genuine tears, genuine upset, and then within five minutes, be absolutely fine. Because if that person did that, they would be putting on an act. They would not be able to, you know, access that level of emotion and come back from it so quickly. But for us, the highly sensitive extroverts, that's our life, you know. It's a very, very misunderstood personality type. But what what is so... what The anger that I have around it is that this work that Elaine Aron did, it was a psychologist called... Elaine Aron, who discovered um, this notion of 20% of people being highly sensitive, is that it's it's not out there enough. It's, it's, she did all this work in the 70s, and it affects so many people, yet it's so... I feel like the research is really hard to find. You know, doctors should know about this stuff, because some people go in with low-level mental health stuff, and actually, they are just highly sensitive people, and they need more support in a certain area. They're not necessarily suffering with depression. They, they just might be sensitive and be surrounded by people who don't understand that. Do you think part of that
1: is because, like as you said, so many highly sensitive people are introverts and there might yeah. be just a lot of these people keeping a lot to themselves
2: Potentially, and not wanting yeah.
1: to express what they yeah. actually think and feel.
2: Yeah, I think you're right there, Claire. I think that is true. I think Instagram and TikTok have also done wonders for raising awareness of it because there are a lot of, like... Teens, I think as there's lots of teenagers and girls in their early twenties talking about being highly sensitive online, and I can see that they're also quite extroverted. So all these people are now coming forward through social media to have the confidence to talk about this, um, and also the personality to be able to not be shy to talk about it. But that's that's probably true, and I think for me this dichotomy of the world needing to be more sensitive than it is—we, I mean, let's face it—we need to live in a more sensitive, compassionate world. We do. And you're being told that you're oversensitive in a world that needs more sensitivity. And that, to me, is this crazy contradiction that I feel we have to live with. People who are HSP have to live with on a daily basis, you know.
1: Mm. To be highly sensitive. I mean, some people seek out practices to become, mm. say, more sensitive, more. Like I guess see some say certain meditation practices that I'm thinking of passana, where you're in silence for, yeah. for 10 days and then that, you go out and you're just everything is you're heightened mm. to everything i mean it sounds on the surface that to be highly sensitive is is a good thing but yeah it's mm. a bad thing like is it is it cla- yeah. is it classed as as a disorder or is that just the way society well, this views is it. it like it's what it's the
2: way society views it and it's because you know you get this whole movement at the moment like anti snowflake movement you know even my dad will call me a snowflake like you know people are being too sensitive yanging yanging yang, er all of this stuff there's a backlash against it um i think um i think it's society because i actually went in in one of my like doctor's appointments so because i've had mental health um like a breakdown on my you know medical file they would check in with me to see how I was. And in that session, like three years later, just did you sort of check in and see how I was. And in that session, I said, look, you know, why is the NHS not registering Elaine Aaron's work as, as a condition? Why why is the doctor not saying to these two, to people, you've got SPS, sensory processing, you know, sensitivity. This is why you're feeling like this. And he just said to me, purely because it's not a negative thing.
0: Mm.
2: It's not really a negative when you think about it. And he said, other people might see it as a negative, but it's too many people, 20% is too high to classify that as a disorder. Because if 20% of people are walking around like that, that's almost, that's a large portion of society that's quite too high for it to be classified as something negative or out of the norm, you know? Um, And he said, essentially, we wouldn't, NHS probably wouldn't the World Health Organization rather I asked would not bring that onto their you know spectrum of disorders because purely there's too many positives about it for it to be classified as a disorder.
1: What does society need to do to or or people in general need to (laughs) what do they need to do to alter say their behavior to say somebody that is
2: highly sensitive like what is a good way to respond? It could literally come down to the fact that Do not judge until you've walked a mile in someone else's shoes. That's it. It's having this understanding. We're getting really good at the moment in society with understanding, especially with the neurological side of things like ADHD, autism, all of those things. Um, The this idea of neurodiversity, which focuses a lot on the kind of the left brain, sort of the you know all of the conditions I just mentioned, we're getting very good, especially in like you know corporate workplaces and stuff who have got neurodiversity teams within their you know their factions and stuff at recognizing that people think differently so therefore someone's brain works differently so they will handle a situation differently and also the workplace should be accommodated to to play to their strengths right in t- terms of projects they're given etc etc but I think we need to now get better at recognizing that people feel things differently so people feel things differently more sensitively than other people not because we're weaker but because we literally have a nervous system that is wired differently to 80% of people and it's having that understanding and being able to see that you know but I really would love to see we're doing so much with neurodiversity on the you know neurological side of things I would love to see that done for emotion and feeling because you know the idea that if, if, you know, we're, we're all familiar with the term, you know, a sociopath or a psychopath, right? People without empathy, lacking in empathy, and lots of research has been done into that. So if that exists, it stands to reason with everything being on a sliding scale, mm-hmm. it stands to reason that there obviously are people at the other end who are born with lots of empathy and lots of sensitivity. And the fact that A exists means that Z should exist as well, you know. I don't know how that can be brought into society, but I think. It's, it's people, it's all these girls on Instagram talking about being highly sensitive. They're doing the work. They're on the front line trying to raise awareness, you know.
0: It is just the raising awareness as well. I think that's the yeah, first
2: point. Rather, you can't,
0: society can't change their approach or their attitude until people are aware of that. And you have to Definitely. forgive a lot of people for having a certain attitude or approach because if that awareness isn't there, they just, you know, this they've never correct. been
2: taught it this is true I mean yeah I and I need to get better at not being mad at people I guess that call me uh oversensitive or that I'm overthinking because they don't have that awareness like they're judging it by themselves so if if they reacted to that in that way they that would be over the top for them so I guess they can only do they they can only base it on their own experience you know but it comes Mm -hmm. down to that thing doesn't it of walking a mile in someone's shoes Have
0: you got any advice for anyone listening at home who thinks they might be highly sensitive? Is there any um, recommended reading or anything they can sort of go to to see?
2: I would say uh, Google Elaine Aaron instantly and read her books, The Highly Sensitive Person, The Highly Sensitive Person in Love. Um, I would get onto TikTok and hashtag Highly Sensitive Person, hashtag HSP and see all these wonderful people. Uh, they're they're so young some of them as well and I'm like so in admiration of these 17 year old girls going on and talking about high sensitivity and so much stuff comes up and instantly they'll probably feel oh I'm not alone because reading that to me was like oh my gosh I'm not alone there's 20% of people in the world that have these emotions and then there's a further I actually got that stat wrong before so it's 20% of people that are highly sensitive and it's of that group 30% 30% of those are extroverts which makes which makes around five three to five percent of the general population that are extroverted and highly sensitive right those are the proper stats there we go you know to, for me to find that out that there was other people like me and like there's someone on Instagram as well had the highly sensitive extrovert and I was like even herself calling herself that made me go oh my god there's someone else like me in the world social media has done wonders I think absolute wonders for for this
1: it's nice to hear because you, you hear so much of neg- the negative side yeah. of social media and and how it dents people's self-esteem. So it's nice to hear the other side that it is just opening up yeah, communication and understanding and raising Solidarity.
2: awareness. Yeah. 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 It's true. It's true. I think it's done more good than bad. Yeah. Do you have
0: an opinion on you say it's kind of uh it's not a negative label highly sensitive people Mm. but then there are a lot of sort of not necessarily labeling but classifying people into sort of certain groups within Mm. mental health do you have an opinion on that sort of i suppose you would call it labeling (laughs) of people and the impact that, that can
2: have that's a really good question, Hallie, because it's it, I feel like it's a double-sided thing. And I think in a way that's what that psychologist was telling me. He was like, we don't want to label pe- people with this because then people will start to see it as a negative thing, like a mental health condition, and it's not. And I think, you know, my, my partner said to me the other day, he's like, why does everyone have to have a label at the moment, you know? Why why is there so many like acronyms after people's name? Why, why is there like, you know, and he said, is that a good th-? He actually has said the same thing to me. Is that a good thing or is it a bad thing? We were talking about um, we were talking about someone who, I got into an argument with someone and they were using um, a condition they have as an excuse for their behavior. And my partner was very annoyed with this. And he was like, see, look, once you give them a the label, you then play up to it. And then you go, oh, it's fine for me to behave like this because I've got this. Um, so I think I think it's in terms of... I think having a label, it, it all comes down to how you use it. I think, yes, there is, a, you know, a danger that, you know, you will get a label and you will go, this is me now, I can... I can This excuses all of this bad behaviour. And you can do that. Um, you know, and you can have the parent of a child diagnosed, you know, with ADHD or something and go, oh, he's like this, this is what he does. But I think if you approach it in the right way to go, use it as a bastion for understanding yourself and being kind to yourself and going, okay, now I can self-soothe myself. Mm -hmm. I know that I do these things because I've got this condition. Now, what can I do about this? How can I best work on myself to make this condition work for me or, or allow me to, what extra tools do I need to learn? What therapy do I need to have so that I don't let the negative parts of this label affect me? How do I, you know, um, not make it my identity? How do I get past that? I think so. I think a label, yeah, it depends how you, it depends, Hallie, how you you approach that, being given that diagnosis, I think. It's definitely a double-edged sword, though, for sure.
0: And I suppose with children at an early age being, you know, given sort of a diagnosis, that, what you were just talking about, has to be taught to them as well.
2: Yeah, definitely, definitely. It's like if, you know, you're you're the mother of a child with, you know, any kind of neurological condition, it's, you know, it can be a relief, can't it, to think, oh, that's what's going on. But also, you know, to, to use it to kind of, yeah, go with, what can we do about this? Now we have this information. Mm-hmm. What support can my child have? How can we best support them? I think the label always has to be used in a positive way and not in an excusing behaviour way, I think. Because, I mean, let's face it, like, you know when you have a mental health condition, it you know, it's hard for other people to be around you. You know, anyone who has one or has been through mental health, you know, even if you've had depression, you know that it's actually really hard for other people to be around. And that's just, unfortunately, a fact of life. You know, that other people are affected by, you know, people when they're going through something. I mean, my poor mother, from my breakdown, my friends, my God, like, you know, what they had to go through to be around me. I think it's really important that we do find the courage to take responsibility for ourselves within, within that diagnosis, you know.
0: Shall I start the quick fire questions? Yeah, yeah perfect fire. time yeah. to do that. Okay, in one word, what does the phrase finding your purpose mean to you? And I think you may have answered that earlier on as well.
2: I think that's finding the thing that makes you burn with passion, finding your joy, yeah finding the, the flame within you. What is the one
1: book that you would love to share with as many people as possible?
2: Yeah, I've already mentioned two of them. I've, I've got three, I'm really sorry. Like I've already mentioned Elaine Aaron's books, The Highly Sensitive Person. Um, I've already mentioned Conversations With God. The only other one I would mention is uh, The Surrender. No, 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 let me get this right. The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. It's a spiritual book. I think everyone should read that book. I think it should be on the national curriculum.
1: Oh, wow. Can you summarise it?
2: Um, He's basically talking about how people don't live in the moment. Everyone's in their heads. Everyone's overthinking. (laughs) It's exactly me talking about it. I stop saying I'm an overthinker. But everyone has a dialogue that they listen to in their head. And those thoughts need to be recognised as thoughts that are coming in and out of your head and not as a reality. And you need to separate yourself from those thoughts and use the brain as it was intended to originally be which is a tool for survival a tool to bring humanity forward but you shouldn't be at the mercy of your brain and your thoughts
0: i listened (laughs) to the audiobook of it quite a while ago now maybe it was start of lockdown covid yeah when i was in the uk and i used to go
2: running and i listened to the audiobook of
0: it it was great
2: i'm terrible for not listening to the book i have to i should read it every month because I find myself in he talks about doesn't he standing in the shower and you he goes, you stand in the shower and you watch the amount of thoughts that come into your head and you can't just be in the moment and enjoy the water. And I'm every day I'm like, my brain is firing off in all cylinders and I'm going, I need to read the untethered soul again.
0: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> do need reminding. And, and yeah. you No, know, he he gives lots of tools about how you can remind yourself to be in just. the moment and all of that. Like every time you walk through a door, you you know, you yeah. use that as a sign. And I just, you know, a year later, I've forgotten all his teachings, but um, yeah, it's a good one for sure. Um, Okay, so how would you like to be remembered?
2: A compassionate pioneer, because my nana was a compassionate pioneer. That that was my nana all over. She had an MBE for charity work, for services to the community in Jersey. And she lost her son when she was 12 and put all of that grief into charity work and helping other people and that was her all over she was a leader she'd be the one to speak up when things were wrong um she was feisty she was driven but had this big big heart and if i could be like my nana i'm I'm doing well you know in my eyes i love you too mum by the way (laughs) you're great too (laughs) okay if you had to give someone
1: one piece of advice or quote about finding your purpose what would this be
2: Two things: don't put pressure on yourself to find your purpose. Secondly, listen to what makes your heart sing. Beautifully put.
0: <laughs> Solid <laughs> advice. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and is there anything else before we come to a close that you would like to talk about or say, or is there anything that uh, you'd like to say now that we haven't covered?
2: I think you've said this in your in your opening uh, podcast, but I think, you know, you've probably got so many interesting guests that come on and talk about not saying I'm an amazing, interesting person. But, you know, acting is kind of unusual. Purpose could just be, you know, being a mummy, being a daddy, you know, working in the supermarket, whatever it is. You know, it doesn't have to be something glamorous. It's whatever makes you happy. could be going to the pub on a Friday, even. I don't know. It's what and your friends in the pub, It's it doesn't have to be something that's something grand. You know, it could be going and sitting in the park every day and looking at flowers if that's what floats your boat. You know, it's it's whatever brings you joy and it doesn't have to be something that's fantastical. You don't have to change the world. You just have to find your joy. That's it.
1: Oh, that's, a, I think, the perfect place to to come to a close thank you so much for coming on so much fun thanks for listening to the squiggly lives podcasts with your hosts helena and claire head over to our website squigglylives.com to subscribe and hear more shows that's all for this episode see you next time